Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's PodCouch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. This podcast has a new home. I'm recording today from Center Table Productions out of Ground Floor Media here in Denver, Colorado. Today, I'm excited to talk to Dr. Tasha Yurek, who's an organizational psychologist, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. Over her 15-plus year career, she's helped thousands of leaders become more self-aware and successful. With a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, Tasha is the principal of the Uric Group, a boutique executive development firm that helps companies from startups to the Fortune 100 succeed by improving the effectiveness of their leaders and teams. She does executive coaching, executive team development, and leadership in high-potential development programs. Thinkers50 has named her one of the top 30 emerging management thinkers in the world and a top 50 world leader in coaching, and she's ranked number 13 on the Global Gurus list of organizational culture experts. Welcome, Tasha. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. How is it to hear that bio? So actually, there's been an update since uh, the last time we updated our website. I am now the number one organizational culture guru. Woo! Pretty shocking. Happened about two weeks ago. Oh, that's pretty amazing. Congrats. I'm, I was floored and flabbergasted and very honored. Well, you should be. I'm so excited for you. And I'm so excited for you to jump right in and talk about this topic of self-awareness. You call it a remarkably rare quality in people that is critical to happiness and success. So how do you define self-awareness and why is it so hard to achieve? Uh, it's such, there's so many aspects to that question. So let me break this down, maybe first by briefly explaining what it is that I do when it comes to this subject. Okay. Um, I, I've been, as you mentioned, an executive coach for you know forever and uh, saw these brilliant, successful, courageous people over and over and over again get really tremendous improvements, not in their leader, not just in their leadership, but in their life from working to see themselves more clearly. And so about seven years ago now, I wanted to know scientifically, what do we actually know about self-awareness? Is it as important as I thought it was? You know, is it a quality that we see in abundance in the world or is it rare? And then if it is important, how do we develop it? So I, I uh, found several members of a kind of multidisciplinary research team that we pulled together and started to do a large scale study on it. Because the reason I thought this was so important, so many people talk about self-awareness. We usually talk about it in the absence, right? Like, oh, that person is not very self-aware. But we wanted to see whether all of the common wisdom about this was actually true. Um, and so we've surveyed thousands of people all around the world. We've interviewed dozens of people who didn't start out self-aware, but who actually were able to build that quality throughout their lives. And what we discovered were a lot of surprises. So, so many things we think make us more self-aware. Sometimes they can actually hurt our self-awareness and success more than help it. So that's that's the backdrop and the context. We found, um, this is a pretty startling data, data point that 95% of people believe that they indeed are self-aware, but the real percentage is closer to about 10 to 15%. And so if you think about that, you know, any math nerds who are listening to this <laughs> might be doing that math, right? The Delta is it, on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. And as it turns out, most people are doing their best, right? We're doing the best we can with what we have. Um, you know, we play several roles in our lives. We're professionals, we're parents, we're spouses. But 
the world is kind of designed to prevent us from seeing ourselves clearly. Um, and so that's what, what our research has really looked to do is given this stark reality, how do we help people get more self-aware? So is self-awareness a subjective measure though? So who gets to determine you are or aren't self-aware? That is a great question. So there, it's, it's a quality that is not easily measurable, but I'll tell you what we've identified again through several years of, of uh, trial and error really is so number one, your own view of yourself is critical. So what that means is how clearly do we see our values, our aspirations, our personalities, our, our the way we react to situations? That's something that we've named internal self-awareness. And it has unique value. Everybody's probably been in a situation where they felt misunderstood or they felt like who they were wasn't aligned with the environment that they're in. That's why it's so important to, to have that clarity in ourselves. But we've also found uh, a type of self-awareness that's just as important and independent, which we've named external self-awareness. So that is actually knowing how other people see us. And as it turns out, we are not terribly objective in rating things like our performance or our socially desirable characteristic. How smart are we? How funny are we? How warm are we? Um, and so those two data points, the way we see ourselves and the way other people see us, are both valuable. And there's the, when I'm speaking about this with, you know, leaders and organizations all around the world, I, I often give a F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, which is basically the definition of true intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind and still retain the ability to function. <laughs> I love that. Isn't it great? And yeah. self-awareness is a little bit like that. I think so many of us want the objective end all be all. You know, people want me to say, oh, your beliefs are what's really true or the way other people see you are what's really accurate. But the really answer is that it's both. Love that. That helps me jump into this idea that you talk about in your book, Insight, which is people have a hard time telling the truth about others. And I find that all day, every day. It's really hard for people to give other people feedback or hard truths. And so if you have a hard time telling others the truth, do you think that also means you have a hard time being truthful to yourself. Mm. I, I like that perspective and, and I've found it largely to be true. You know, I think I remember when I first started working on this book, I was looking for people to join our research team and I called one of my favorite professors from my PhD program. And we had this really interesting conversation where I said, uh, I'm really looking to, to show that self-awareness is, you know, the meta skill of the 21st century for us as people, as professionals, as parents. And he said, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up are you sure that it's actually helpful? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, isn't it better to see ourselves with rose-colored glasses? Isn't it better to just think we're awesome regardless of the objective reality? And he had a very fair point. And, you know, we all sort of see this in the world. We see other people who have these, you know, sort of like delusionally positive views of themselves. I equate it to refined sugar. You know, if I sit here and eat a box of milk duds, I'm probably going to feel really good for about an hour. And then I'm going to crash and then it's going to start to hurt my blood sugar and my health. And if I do it in the long term, it's going to be even more harmful. Um, and so that's what I help people try to think about is, you know, do we want that sort of short term 
surprise sometimes of, of really seeing ourselves clearly and asking people how they see us and really having that honest conversation? Or do we want to live a, a life of blissful ignorance, which comes with a lot of risks? You know, um, a lot of participants in our study who didn't start out self-aware, who became, you know, very self-aware, mentioned things that happened in their lives that were just these rude awakenings. You know, they, I remember one woman said her husband abruptly left her and she had no idea why their marriage was falling apart. There are people who had, you know, who were fired abruptly and they didn't even know there was a problem. And so that's where, you know, I always say like a lack of self-awareness isn't a problem until the moment that it is. Um, and, and we just never know when that's going to happen. It's so true. I think my experience in a therapy practice is that the people that I work with, probably you work with a lot of leaders, so they may be more on the grandiose side. I work with parents and kids, and they are on the lesser side where they don't see their accomplishments. They don't see their own greatness. And it just seems like they have a really rigid story about themselves. And so how do you deal with that if you do ever have that in, in leaders that you work with when they don't see the good things that they are doing? That is such an important point. And I talk about this a lot, particularly with audiences of female leaders. There are two ways we can be unself-aware. One of them is to overestimate ourselves and equally dangerous, but for different reasons, is to underestimate ourselves. And there's sort of a lot to this that we could unpack. But if maybe somebody who's listening to this feels like that might be their self-awareness challenge is, is sort of learning their own power and awesomeness, there's a great exercise that I do uh, with many of my clients who, who have this challenge called the reflected best self exercise. And this is something you're probably familiar with, right? Where if you don't see how great you are, uh, an excellent way to do that is to see yourself through other people's eyes. And so it's as simple as, you know, this is not rocket science. Science, I often tell my clients this, open up an email and put in, you know, 15 or 20 people in the two, you know, BCC them just so there isn't reply all craziness, but ask them, you know, I'm trying to work on seeing myself more holistically and completely. And one of the ways I'm trying to do that is to better understand my strengths. Can you give me, if you're comfortable helping, one or two examples of when you've seen me at my best? And the funny thing about this is when you're working with people who don't fully see their own power and contributions, sometimes the question is, well, I can't ask 15 to 20 people to do that. That'll put them out. You know, they're not going to have time. And I say, well, can you humor me and just try it? And what most people find is people are responding within minutes of getting this email because they want to help and they want to help you be successful and they have so many examples. So then your job becomes sifting through the stories of your awesomeness and figuring out what are those themes and patterns. And, and I just think there's so much we can all learn from that. And it's just as important to know our strengths as our um, you know, potential blind spots. I love that. I love that. I hope that people listening will do that. And I'm sitting here thinking, would I do that? Would I be? It takes like, I think, a level of vulnerability to do that. Not because I think I'll get negative feedback, but just because it feels so exposing. Like, what are one or two things you think is awesome about me or you appreciate about me? But I love that exercise. And I will say in Insight, you have a lot of like techniques and ideas that guide people through the book on how to become essentially more self-aware and see yourself a lot more clearly so you can succeed in life. So there's a lot more of that where this came from. One of the things you also write about in your book is you talk about how you see self-awareness as different from introspection. And I'm really interested to hear more of your thoughts around that. 
So this was one of the most shocking discoveries in our research program. And I'll just briefly tell you how I experienced it because it, you know, for a while I was like, oh my God, maybe self-awareness is bad. <laughs> so uh, we did a study early on in the program where we were looking at what I thought was a really simple research question. So we surveyed about 300 people and we asked them um, basically three types of questions. The first one is how much time they spent introspecting. In other words, analyzing their thoughts or their feelings or their motives, kind of why they are the way they are. Then we looked at their level of self-awareness and also things like uh, things that uh, define the quality of their lives. So were they happy? Were they, did they show low depression, low anxiety, low stress? Were they happy with their relationships? Were they happy with their jobs in control of their lives? And naturally, what I knew to be true, of course, was that we were going to survey all these people and the people who introspected would be more self-aware and they would be better off on all of those life criteria. But our results showed the exact opposite pattern. And I was so confused that I, I was like, maybe I did these analyses wrong. And I did them five or six times, literally. And I said, okay, well, um, that's interesting. And that's why science is so important is because we sort of have these, you know, common pieces of wisdom that we accept to be true that are not always what they seem. And so we dug into this and the question was, is introspection bad? Most of us see it as the, the express way to self-awareness, but, you know, is there something about this that actually is, is, is wrong or in effective. And the good news, I'll spare you, you know, the months and months of, of research <laughs> we had to do to figure this out. But the, the bottom line of what we found was, it's not that introspection in and of itself is wrong or ineffective. It's that most people are doing it completely wrong. And so we went back to those people that uh, didn't start out as self-aware, but who made these sort of dramatic, remarkable improvements. And we looked at what they were doing differently. And again, to, to vastly oversimplify this, we found that they were asking themselves fundamentally different questions when they were introspecting. Most people ask themselves, why? So an example would be, let's say, you know, a moment of introspection happens if I don't get a promotion at work that I, I thought I was gonna get. I might say, why didn't I get that promotion? But what scientists have discovered, and we've actually known this for, for many years, just not very publicly, is that when we ask ourselves why, we sort of do this like psychological excavation into our unconsciousness. And we think, I'm gonna find the real reason I'm like this or the real reason this happened. But what we know is that we usually can't access a lot of those unconscious thoughts or feelings or motives, no matter how hard we try. So here's what happens. We look for a reason, we find a reason that feels true and is uh, often not true. And that starts to lead us away from the real answers, right? So we're sort of asking ourselves these questions that, you know, why am I like this? Or why did I do that? Or why didn't this happen the way I wanted it to? Those are often things we can't know. And so what we found with our research participants was they were asking slightly different introspective questions. So in the, in the promotion scenario, instead of why didn't I get this promotion, they might ask, what have I learned from this that I can apply in the future? Or I look back over my life, what are the patterns or similar situations like this one? And what can I learn from it? And so the tool we named is what, not why. Uh, essentially, instead of asking these why questions that are you know, making us sort of more emotional, less logical, 
what questions help us move forward. They help us be action oriented. They help us be empowered instead of stuck. And so that's a, you know, again, to grossly oversimplify it, I think that's one of the takeaways that, that, you know, so many people have gotten from this research, including me, which is pay attention to the questions you're asking yourself. Just because it feels like the right question doesn't mean that it is. Um, And if we can make those little tweaks, it makes a, a big difference. Let me ask you a clarifying question about this then. So I don't get the promotion. At any point, is it useful to say or start off with, hmm, why didn't I get this promotion? Is that even useful or... Or do you jump to what can I learn from this experience? So there are no hard and fast rules in general. And you know this with therapy, right? Life is messy. Life is complicated. But in general, so in addition to asking these why questions and and getting led away from the truth about ourselves, the other thing we've discovered, we and others, is that why questions tend to put us into these ruminative thought patterns where we get, I call it the rabbit hole of rumination. And if you ask yourself, why didn't I get this promotion? It can feel like a perfectly productive question. But oftentimes what it does is it causes us to focus on our limitations or our shortcomings and not in a helpful way, right? Why didn't I get this promotion? Because I'm doomed to failure, because I just am not cut out for management. And we sort of answer these questions in a way that we're not honoring ourselves. We're not seeing ourselves compassionately. And that's where I, you know, I, I think there we can still get some of the same information, but more productively by saying, you know, what, what can I learn from this? I think that's getting at the heart of what we're trying to ask when we ask, why didn't I get the promotion? Mm-hmm. But it's leading us away from that um, really self-destructive pattern of thoughts. Um, I'd be curious from, from your work, what you see there. Um, I'm sure you, you deal with that a lot with your clients. Well, it, as you were talking, like something went off in my head and I wasn't connecting it at all with the messages and insight, but I recently had a client who essentially said, well, I just found out, um, my husband's having an affair and I'm going to leave him, you know, so I want to come in and see you. And I put together this list of questions and none of them were about like, why do you think this happened? It was like, it was just a total like moving forward. How are we going to do this well? How are we going to handle custody? And so I think without without me really giving it a lot of thought, it was like doing this whole why piece will feel, I think, really unproductive. And so what I think will be more productive is, you know, what can we learn from? When did the person, you know, reveal themselves to you and you didn't listen to them? And, you know, how are we going to move forward? It just felt very like forward moving Mm -hmm. in that particular case. So, but I think what's, so that's helpful as me as a therapist, I probably do that sometimes and don't really acknowledge that what I'm doing, but I think this is a great tip for, you know, everyone listening right now probably has a job, but they're also a spouse and a friend and a sibling. And so I think it also applies very much so to your personal life. It's just the life skill of, of, I think being like, evaluative or introspective, you know, whatever word you want to kind of call it. But one of the things I'm also thinking about as you're talking is you have all this incredible worldly experience with large companies and probably big CEOs and all of that. But what about people in startup mode and entrepreneurs? Is there a different playbook for them? You know, one of the things I love the most about my job is how shockingly universal leadership challenges are no matter what you're doing or where you are in the world. I've worked on every continent but Antarctica. And I've worked in everywhere from, you know, 
big offices of you know CEOs in New York City to working with female entrepreneurs in Uganda in a you know a, a hut with a dirt floor and the conversations are exactly the same you know there's there's nuances and regional specifics and you know depend if you're in a big company or a small company but the questions are always the same and I think they're even more human than than just our role as leaders it's how can I bring the best out of other people how can I be proud of what I'm accomplishing how can I help people work through their own resistance to change how can I work through my own resistance to change how can I sort of respond to this changing world we find ourselves in and in all spheres of my life and what I, you know, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. The more I do this, um, and it's been, you know, almost 20 years now. I think that there are so many universal challenges that that bring us together. So for an entrepreneur, you know, one one unique consideration I might give that I think a you know a Fortune 500 CEO might not have, for example, would be maybe if you're in a startup mode, you've hired your friends. And, you know, there isn't the sort of distance that you have with, oh, you're my employee and I'm your boss. I think there are some situations that can make it messier and more complicated. So that would be one thing I would think about is is it's sort of, you know, you as a holistic person in a completely, in a bigger way than maybe a, a bigger company with more distance between people, which just makes our self-awareness probably even more important. Um, so so I think there's there, most of it is overlapping, but I think there can be some unique differences too. I love that. You've shared so much good stuff. I will say the last thing I want to end with, my last question to you, is you talk about mindfulness in your book and you offer specific ideas on how to incorporate it into our daily lives. Can you share why you think this is so important and give us even just one simple strategy to not just try it but actually help it become a habit? Sure. So uh, this is a big topic, so I'm, I'm trying to think of just something very <laughs> quick. Here's one. So one of the things that most of us could do a better job with, um, you know, in terms of being mindful and being in the present moment is actually getting away from our own perspectives and noticing new things about the situation from either like a neutral standpoint or even through the eyes of the people we're, we're um, you know, living with or working with. And so the tool, it's, it's by a psychologist named Richard Weisbord. It's called Zoom In, Zoom Out. So the next time you're in a situation that is, you know, potentially stressful or emotionally charged, the tool says first to zoom in on your own experience, right? To say like, what can I notice in the mindful way about what I'm feeling right now or what's going on right now? Most people stop there, right? But what can really take our, our understanding of the situation to the next level is to say, what can I notice now? To, so I zoomed in, I zoom out and say, what can I notice about this other person? What are they experiencing? What are they feeling? What unique emotions might they be having right now? Um, and we found that the ability to take other people's perspectives is like a superpower of self-awareness. It's sort of ironic that we, we understand ourselves better by looking at other people more objectively, but most people don't take the time to do that, especially when they're under stress. I love, love, love that tip. The book is Insight, Why We're Not As Self-Aware As We Think and How Seeing Ourselves Clearly Helps Us Succeed at Work and in Life. And I will say I also subscribe to your newsletter, which I really genuinely appreciate. I think you only send it out once a month, right? Yep. It's it's uh, once a month, no more, no spam ever because that's annoying. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that's TashaYurik.com, right? Where people can sign up for your newsletter. And it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for sharing all of your years of research and work. Thank you, Cheryl. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
And once again, this was recorded at Center Table at Ground Floor Media in Denver, Colorado. Thanks for listening.